You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so delighted that you are listening. There is no particular theme that connects my guests on today's show. A brand new play being Zoomed by Greenhouse Theatre Project a new at-home series of educational opportunities from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, and a final chat with Talking Horse Productions founder Ed Hansen before he leaves town for New Horizons, but not before he publishes his first children's book. But one thing that came up on today's chats was what a great deal we get living in Colombia. We have a multitude of theatre companies, often producing works as good as you can see in major cities around the world, and for a fraction of the cost. I mean, what would a $17 theatre ticket buy you in New York? You'd not even get a backseat off-Broadway production of Oklahoma by Boy Scout Troop 737. And yet here in Columbia for that price, I can sit in the glorious Missouri theatre for a show, I can hear world-famous people like Wynton Marsalis come to town to play for the We Always Swing Jazz series. For just $10, I can go to our own independent movie theatre. And I don't have to sit in interminable traffic or do battle on a subway to get to any of this. Maybe when these pandemic times have passed and we're out and about again, ticket prices might have gone up a few dollars to account for the hard times. But it seems like that will be a small price to pay for the sumptuous variety of arts that are laid out for us to enjoy, especially when this year has taught us that there are no guarantees any longer. So let's start this week's show with some theatre. Greenhouse Theatre Project's founder and executive director, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, and her brother, playwright and actor Matt Bratton, who are collaborating on a new production. Good morning, Elizabeth and Matt. Good morning. Good morning. So I don't think I've had a brother and sister on the show before. Do I need to have your mum on standby in case there are any spats or are you well behaved (laughs) together? Well, I think think we can work our stuff out without our mom. (laughs) That might make it a little dicier. (laughs) If only I had a phone number. Anyway, Elizabeth, the Columbia Theatre World knows you as the founder and director of Greenhouse Theatre Project. And some people will also remember Matt being in town a few years ago for the world premiere of his play called The Wedding Present, which was performed at Talking Horse Productions. And as well as both being actors and playwrights, you also both sing in a band. So I'm curious, (laughs) which of you started this acting, playwriting and singing thing first? Well, I'm older. <laughs> so did you start it and Elizabeth followed or were you kind of doing it at the same time? Yeah, I've got about a decade on her. So, But that said, she was probably doing this at two <laughs> when I was doing it at, you know, 12, 13. 
our mother got, got us into children's theater when we were in elementary school, which was a pretty remarkable thing given where we grew up in a little rural patch of Minnesota. And I think that started the theater aspect of it. The music part, well, back when they had music in schools, uh, they don't, where I live, unfortunately, not in public schools, which is pretty tragic. I think that really ignited the music aspect. I'll, I'll let Liz respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, music, I think was always a part of our lives in our house. We, all of us were singers, my mom, my dad, my sister, Matt, myself. And oftentimes we would all sing together kind of Von Trapp style, either in <laughs> church or for funerals, weddings, whatever. <laughs> and like Matt said, um, yeah, music was definitely part of our curriculum in school. And I think we all played instruments and we sang in choirs and had voice lessons. And I think as you get older, uh, bands are just the next step in exercising your, um, your voice and your beliefs, you know, politically and, and otherwise and stuff. So that was just like a natural step, I think, for all of us. So Elizabeth, do you remember as a young child watching Matt and thinking, yeah, I want to do that too? It's kind of like what Matt said. It was, I, I already felt like I was doing it. I think that at a very young age, I was, um, yeah, I was brought everywhere with my parents because like Matt said, I'm significantly younger than my other siblings. So because of that, I was kind of dragged to everything. So I would sit through their rehearsals for shows, for plays, for, for music, for concerts. I'd sit through meetings. I'd sit through lessons. Um, I was always just there kind of observing and absorbing. And so it was just a part of my life. It wasn't even something that I thought, ooh, that's what I'm going to do. It was just like a natural, it was just stitched into the fabric of my my day-to-day. I thought I was going to be a hairdresser or a waitress. And as it turns out, I was a waitress for many years. <laughs> so, so that was what, those were my aspirations as a child. <laughs> but, um, but I think just the artistic side of things were embedded in our day-to-day. Now, you both have another sibling. There's another sister, too. Does she follow in the Von Trapp family tradition or does she do something completely different? Is she the hairdresser? <laughs> she has great hair, but she's not a hairdresser. She's a professor. We all pretty much overlap quite a bit in what we do. So she teaches uh, film and Asian humanities, and she's a writer, a very talented writer in her own right, and works in film and stuff like that. So between the three of us, we're all artistic and we're all teachers and we're all writers. Our father was a farmer, but he was also very, very much so in tune with writing and reading and and music. And I think that he just kind of had this gentle approach to things, whereas we kind of just put ourselves out there in a different way. And, and so I think back our parents really did have a lot to to do with the, <laughs> with the paths that we all took. So now the two of you are collaborating on a new production, a brand new play called COVID Buddies, written by Matt and soon to be performed as part of Greenhouse Theatre Project's third annual Living Room One X this year, the pandemic edition. Elizabeth, <laughs> explain a little bit about the background to the Living Room One Act series. Oh, I love the living room one X. So this was an idea a couple years ago that I had to literally 
perform in people's homes. You know, Greenhouse is always looking for a new space, a new stage, a new venue. And I thought, well, we already work pretty intimately. Why not just bring it right into people's living rooms? And so the original idea was that we ask a couple Greenhouse friends, patrons who have decent sized living room, if they'd be willing to open their their house up for one night to maybe 50 or so strangers to pile in and watch a one act. And, um, and so the first year it was kind of a test and we did it at two different houses on two different nights. And it was, it was a blast. And so the next year, which was last year, I actually decided that we would always feature new plays. So I worked with two playwrights. I actually did, uh, I put a submission out there and people responded and, uh, and then I chose two plays and one of the playwrights was from St. Paul and the other one was local. And so we performed three different nights in three different living rooms. And I think we packed about, you know, 60, we really pushed it last year. I think we had about 60, 65, 70 people each night and we did two one X back to back and it was just a blast. So it was something that I wanted to continue doing. And with the pandemic, I just felt like, you know, we can keep doing this because it's called living room one X and literally people can just watch in their own living room. Now they don't have to venture to someone else's living room. So Matt, when Elizabeth reached out to you and said she wanted a new play, what was the brief she gave you? She told me a little bit. I've been following, of course, what they do. I live in Los Angeles, so I unfortunately do not get to attend many of her events live. I've, I've attended a, a few, two, I think. So when she reached out, you know, it was already into the pandemic at that point. Los Angeles was in full lockdown and she was planning this out, thinking we want to do something that is of the moment. And so we were talking about what the limitations were, or I shouldn't be so negative, I guess. What, what are the positives <laughs> Positives of the situation? You know, I was already teaching classes on Zoom and done some workshops and was fairly, I guess, as adept as every other American is presently on Zoom, I, I, you know, anybody who's working from home. But we talked about what was happening and trying to address some of that. And I had a few ideas bouncing around in my head and I thought, okay, I think there's something we can, something really cool we can do here. But um, I'm trying to remember what else she, she can jump in here. Uh, definitely wanted to kind of hit the pandemic and the time. Go ahead, Liz. Yeah. Yeah. Basically the criteria was um, the theme was pandemic light. So I wanted it to be something in response to the pandemic, but not super heavy. <laughs> and cause you know, we've been dealing with enough heavy and then two or less performers and it had to be written for the zoom platform. So that was basically it. So Matt, give us a little overview of Precy of what COVID buddies is about. Sure. So I've been in Los Angeles for about 20 years. And so I'm trying to draw on a lot of different experiences, I guess what popped in my head right away, was what we were going through here and reading the paper and hearing what friends were going through. Um, like I feel very lucky to live in a house with a yard. Um, but you know, many of our friends that we were in contact with were in apartments. I had done this for years and years where you're in, in a little, little place in the Valley. And, um, the idea of being really quarantined there, I mean, it's not a gulag, let's be real, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's not that pleasurable. And, and, and just thinking even, I think I was on Craigslist and uh, looking for something 
for the yard. And there's people who, who, you know, were kind of desperately looking for roommates. And I think that's not so uncommon. Although I think personally, I think Craigslist is a terrible place to live for roommates. <laughs> you're asking for trouble. But, you know, you're just drawing a lot of these different things. And so I, I just had this idea of what if two people, two women who don't know each other are stuck together for a 14-day quarantine, if I'm not giving too much away. No, it's great. And then in the in the the lens of, if you will, or dual lens of Zoom, I, I also write for the screen. So it was a fun challenge to do something that's very theater or theatrical in that sense, but also very Zoom-centric, very, if you will, split screen. So I think, I won't use the word clever, because um, we're from Minnesota and we don't... <laughs> We're, we're more humble. We're a, hum, a humble stock, I believe. But um, I think it. I think it's it's very cool. I think people will enjoy. And what Liz and and Julia are doing, they're the clever ones. They're making it really work, in my my opinion. So Elizabeth, it's a two person play. Like Matt said, there's you and Julia Varlin, who was here last year from New York for the Hedda Gabler production. And you're going to perform it live on Zoom. So talk to me a little bit about the production of it and the rehearsal process between you and Julia. So, you know, this is one of these positives, I guess, that, that has come out of COVID is being able to rehearse with people who are not in the space with you. You know, before that, I would have thought that that's, you know, slightly ridiculous because I'm a firm believer in the traditional energetic process that goes into <laughs> creating something with people and being in the same space. But given the circumstances, we have to adapt and, and here we are. So Julia is actually, she fled New York City when the pandemic <laughs> hit and she went to stay at her parents' house in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. And so she is currently there living in their basement, as many artists have found themselves living in people's basements somewhere or their parents. And so when I called her and asked her if she'd be interested in doing this, she was excited about it because she, she's definitely been dedicating a lot of her time to activism in the past several months and hadn't been doing anything creative. So I think that this was this was really a healthy thing for her and for both of us. And to be able to work with her again, I really loved working with her on Hedda. And um, she's just a, a smart, funny actor, you know, and she, she gets it. And so this isn't, there's a lot that's lost in translation when you're rehearsing with someone on Zoom, but you have to have faith in each other and and patience, a lot of patience. And so through this process, we've been working with Matt on the script and he listens to us and kind of listens to even some of the little um, little things that we kind of add or take away or whatever from the script. And he's he's been very cool about, you know, working with us on that because it's a when you're when you're producing a new work, there's this trial and error that goes into the process of creating something. And and even as myself as a playwright, like when I write something, I'm usually specifically writing it for Greenhouse. So I know I'm going to have my hands all up in it throughout the whole you know rehearsal process. It's going to change. It's going to morph. I always ask my company to to get their hands dirty too in it. You know, I, I want that collaboration. And so Matt's been really great in that kind of methodology too with us. 
So the living room Onyx, I mean, what I love about them is that they are just so incredibly intimate. You're there in someone's living room. The actors are two feet away from you. Any Anything that the actors emanate just vibrates through you. You're, you're just so there. You're on stage with them. It's, it's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Do you think that intimacy can translate to some extent through Zoom? Yeah. You know, if you would have asked me that six, seven months ago, well, let's be real. Six, seven months ago, I had no idea what Zoom was, (laughs) (laughs) but I would have said no. And then after doing natural shocks, you know, the intimacy for me with natural shocks, for some reason, you know, I was in full isolation performing that alone in my basement, but staring at that green light, the camera that was on my screen became this portal of energy for me. And I really did feel the the audience through that as weird and mystical as that sounds. And so to answer your question, yes, I do feel like you can feel that intimacy, especially like with a piece like this, the actors are looking directly at their camera. They're speaking to the camera because they're speaking to each other, but they are quarantined in their own bedrooms in this apartment. And so when they talk to each other, they talk to each other on their computers. And so you feel like you are being spoken to. It's right there. It's happening with you. You're in the room with them. You're in this apartment with them. So yeah, I do think that you, you hold on to some of that intimacy. Yes, it's not the same as smelling the actors that are, as you said, two feet away from you or feeling their spat on your face. But no one wants to feel anyone's spat these days on their face. I'm glad to be sequestered in my own living room in that case. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Matt and Elizabeth, thank you so much. Living Room 1X, the pandemic edition, volume one, will be performed next week on October the 1st and 2nd with a play entitled COVID Buddies by Matt Brappen. Tickets are $10 and you can get them at greenhousetp.org. And I guess, Matt, people can watch it, you know, all over all over Los Angeles too, because now we're on Zoom and so we can go out around the world. Anywhere. That's the other positive. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much for taking time to chat today. Thank you so much, Diana. Yes, thank you. Next stop today is the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, where its executive director, Trent Rash, aka Mr. Mosey, this week launched their Mosey at Home program. Good morning, Trent. Good morning. So it's just over a year since you joined the Missouri Symphony Orchestra as its executive director. A year which had someone said to you in August of last year, imagine the wildest year you can for your first year. You would not even have come close to conjuring up the year we have had. But like all arts organizations leaders, you have had to learn to roll with the circumstances we find ourselves in and invent programming that suits the time. And with necessity being the goddess of ingenuity, do you think that the organization has actually reached new heights of programming creativity during this time? I'm proud to say yes, I do believe we have. So tell us about Mosey at Home, which is a new program that you are launching this week, which I think speaks volumes to the time we live in and how creative you've been. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So it it all started off actually with the brainchild of our former director of development, Monica Seneca Palmer. When COVID first hit, you know, she was stuck at home with her kids and I was also dealing with mine. And, you know, these were big things and and it, it was hard to understand how to talk to your children about those things. So 
she decided on this program inspired by Mr. Rogers that was where a person, Mr. Mosey, would talk to the, the kids and then in turn um, they would learn about classical symphonic music along the way. And that sort of became the catalyst for us for a whole line of programming that we've titled Mosey at Home. And what we're trying to do it with this particular section of our website is have an area for every sort of person from young to old where they can come and see content, uh, musical content, educational content that they can reach and enjoy in the safety and comfort of their own home during this time where it, it is still difficult to get together and, and to be safe. And so Mr. Mosey was the start of that. And most recently, we launched Mosey U, which is an online educational platform of music education that is used by our conservatory students, but also can be used by school children everywhere. Um, and it involves lessons about pieces of music and composers and, and musical terms. And it sort of serves as an additional resource and enrichment for what they're, they're learning uh, while playing. The most recent piece has been Virtuosity, which is what we're calling where virtual meets virtuoso. And that is where we're housing our online musical performances. So this summer we did a Hot Summer Night's Greatest Hits that was a curated 15 concerts of the best of the last 10 years that Maestro Kirk put together. And so that is where any online programming that we do that is either live streamed or is pre-recorded will live where people can watch while we cannot meet in person. And then the last exciting piece is Mosey Motifs, which is going to be a podcast, which I think you're a little familiar with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is going to explore relevant and interesting topics in symphonic music. And I'm really excited about this because my director of education and outreach, Dr. Ashley Pribble, her first series is going to focus on the black and brown experience in classical symphonic music. And so she's going to bring in some scholars, some musicians who are, are in those particular communities and talk about how they feel included or excluded from performing and, and partaking in, in symphonic music. But that's just an example of all of this series will sort of have a, a theme of that kind that will look at different topics and, and trends in symphonic music today. So the Mosey U is divided into three different age groups for different Mm -hmm. ages of children so they can choose the one that's most appropriate to them. What is the content? What are you giving them when they register for that? Yeah, so essentially um, the three levels indicate, generally speaking, their age in school or or where they are at in their learning process. But, you know, it may be that if if you're a beginner, you may start with the the lower level or you may be young and be so advanced you're at the high level. So each each level is a a little more in-depth into what is being talked about and uses terms that would someone who had the knowledge who was a little bit more advanced would be able to use. So the highest level, which is called Vivace, is for those students who are really invested in music and, and, and honestly want to explore it even after they leave high school. So students who say, you know, no matter what, I'm going to to do something with music in college, whether it's a double major or a minor, or, you know, I, I'm even just going to play, you know, in, a, in an ensemble. That's for for them. And then that middle level, Allegro, is, is for high school students or advanced, you know, middle school students who um, have a good base of knowledge and just need to continue to grow skills. And then the lower level, Moderato, is for those sort of beginning students as they're starting to learn all the, the terms and, and technical things that go into making music and looking at music and how to read music. But what am I getting as a student? Is it a, a one-on-one class with a live person? Is it a recording? Is it a PDF? What's the content? It's a little bit of everything, actually. So uh, you receive a curated 
a selection of the, the piece. So for instance, the first lesson focuses on a Vivaldi a concerto. And so there's a, there's a YouTube video of a performance of that piece. And then the, the PDF of the music is there in case somebody wants to look at it. And then there's a piece that kind of puts it into the context of the time period. So that is a piece that is sort of, in sense, a, um, a lecture piece that has lots of really fun graphics while Ashley has recorded her voice sort of over those graphics. So she, as she's telling the story, you're kind of seeing visual images of what she's talking about. And they're really no more than five-minute pieces. And then it'll go back and it'll there's a lot of listening again and, and learning how to listen critically. And then how many times did you hear this melody? Things like that. And for each section, it's a little different based on, based on the skill level. Mm-hmm. And then there's a piece that talks about the composer themselves. You know, what did they do? Where were they at in their life when they wrote this? You know, what, what, what was going on for them? And then it usually ends at the end with a little, um, not even, um, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's at all difficult, but just a little regurgitation of what was going on in the lesson, try to gain them to make some connections between what they just experienced. And do these get released each week? So each week you get a new lesson? Yes. The goal is that each week you get a new lesson and then Ashley would like to have three years worth of content eventually so that a student could do this for three years without ever seeing the same content. That's a huge amount of work. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and it, it requires a lot of time on her part. She actually has a day she dedicates at home because obviously to try to record in an office with other people is very difficult. So there's a day she spends all day at home just recording. So one of the criticisms of classical education and and the classical music world, of course, is that it is very dominated by dusty old white men. And there Mm -hmm. are fantastic composers of color. There are fantastic female composers. And yet often, even for black and brown musicians, when they first hear about somebody like Chevalier de Saint-Georges, they are also amazed because it's just never been in their lesson plans. Nobody is teaching it from a young age onwards. So often students are getting to a university level without even knowing that there's this incredible richness of black and brown composers out there that have just been overlooked. So in in terms of Ashley's programming, is is she introducing new and different well, not new and different, but um, existing, but different canon of works into the program. That is definitely the goal. I think this first semester is a little bit more standard just to get things started, but it definitely, her background in, um, her, her doctorate is actually specializes in musical theater, but she, she also has a, a real love for diversity and diverse music. So I know that she wants to focus one semester on American music, but talk about that from the experience of, you know, in American music, there's actually a lot of wonderful black composers we can talk about, a lot of wonderful female composers we can talk about. So that's one way, yes, she wants to bring that in. But I do think coming off her podcast, I think she plans to learn a lot from these scholars and musicians she's going to talk to that will sort of inform her and help inspire her for future lessons as well. So it's always a challenge for organizations. We we know the audience we have, um, and it takes considerable time and resources to expand our audience and to reach out to new audiences that we don't already have. So with something like Mosey at Home, or particularly with Mosey U, which is theoretically accessible to children of, of all different backgrounds, but the reality is how do they get to hear about it? How do, how are you planning to reach out to more audiences in 
underserved communities to say, hey, this is here for you. You can you mm-hmm. can access it. And is it accessible financially to them? Do you have a right. scholarship program? Yes, very good question. I just had a wonderful meeting with James Melton, who's the finance coordinator for Columbia Public Schools on Friday. And, uh, you know, I talked at length to him. Don't let people think that the fact that this is a tuition-based program keep them from exploring it because we do have resources that can help others. And in fact, we have some very dedicated members still alive and some who have passed who whose livelihood is to help students who who don't have the means to grow in these areas to, to gain access to them. And so, there, yes, there is money available for people that just simply if they, if they reach out and ask that we're more than happy to help with. That's set aside specifically to allow people to experience these things that we offer that they might not otherwise get to just based on their own you know, economic circumstances. Right. So are you going to be promoting this through the Columbia Public Schools? Yeah, we, we have been in talks with um, actually helping Ashley form a curriculum committee that involves teachers from CPS, maybe even from CIS, from some of the other private schools in town, so that they also have sort of a voice. She, of course, she always jokes she can teach the really young people well that don't know things than college students, but to get that help for you know middle school, high school students is very valuable to her as well, and to help us also streamline and, and be accessible or a value added to their curriculum. So these things that we're talking about that are important, you know, black composers, brown composers, female composers, that's not always in, you know, that everyday curriculum, but maybe we can be a value added and we can streamline with what they're talking about and add those other diverse perspectives to what's being explored during the school day. So some of these things are already available and some are coming. Mosey, you, you launched this week, is that correct? Yes. So, the, so episode one or lesson one is now available. Yeah, lesson one is available. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the Mosey Motifs, which is the podcast that is in the planning stages. So that's not available yet. Correct. We are still securing some funds and some uh, the equipment necessary to make sure, you know, that's very successful. So that's sort of the, the last piece of Mosey at Home. So we hope that that will get launched sometime later this fall. And Mr. Mosey's Neighborhood, which you did over the summer, you had 10 episodes in season one. Is Mr. Mosey coming back for season two? You know, I'm excited to say that he is. <laughs> uh, we, we recently received our first sort of seed money for a season two. And so the, the plan, the tentative plan is that uh, Mr. Mosey will have a season two in the spring. Well, that's that's very exciting. I'm sure Mr. Mosey's fans will be delighted to know yes. that he'll be back and he has extra money to buy you know, different bow ties and sweaters. That's right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Trent Rash, thank you so much for catching us up on what is happening with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. And um, I look forward to seeing Mr. Mosey again soon. Yes, me too. Thanks, Trent. Thanks. After 30 plus years living in Colombia, one of our most famous arts makers, Talking Horse Productions founder Ed Hansen, is about to depart our fair city for a new life adventure across the border, the one with Kansas, but not before launching a new career as a children's author and leaving us with one more thing to remember him by. Good morning, Ed, and welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, you have worn many hats during your time in Colombia. Father, educator, actor, director, choir master, singer, business manager, executive director of Talking Calls Productions until last year. And now you are adding author 
to that long list with the publication of a new book called The Artful Dodger. So I want to chat to you about your new foray into the world of book publishing and also... As you are imminently departing Columbia for new pastures, I'm thinking of today's chat as a sort of exit interview. <laughs> well, it could be that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you just ask questions and I'll do my best to answer them. It's so weird not being in the same room with you while we're talking. I know, but I'm just whispering in your ear, so it, you know, it's <laughs> more like being in a, in a darkened theater with me. There you go. So... <laughs> Let's start with The Artful Dodger. Tell me, first of all, what is the book all about? Okay, well, the the full title is The Adventure of Artful Dodger. And my dog is named Dodger, and he is uh, an an artful dog. He lives in the world of arts, and... uh, uh, but he's also the artful dodger because if you're familiar with the uh, Dickens tale of Oliver Twist, and I know you are, the artful dodger is uh, one of the main characters in the story. It's a street urchin who lives with a Fagin, the man who runs this little motley crew of children who are pickpockets. And uh, my dog was a street dog originally, and he's very crafty, <laughs> even though he's now 15. He has a way of, of um, getting what he wants, and uh, he's very sneaky. And he's been known to escape from the house several times. And so uh, we had an episode last November where he actually escaped from a dog sitter's house, and he was out for four nights. And uh, so one of my friends from the theater community, Parker Ross, and I don't know if you've met Parker before or not, but Parker uh, is a fabulous artist also. And at that time, Parker was still in high school, but they drew a picture of Dodger romping around in the woods with me calling to him in the background. And it's real obvious from the look on Dodger's face, he has no intention of responding to my calls. <laughs> and everybody, he, uh, Parker posted this on Facebook and everybody just went nuts for the picture. And I don't remember who, who it was that suggested it, but they said, this looks like a children's book cover. And that's when it occurred to me that this would be a great book for children if I actually took the time to write it. Well, as soon as the pandemic sort of shut everything down, I said, this is a great time. I have to be at home anyway. This is a great time to just jump in and write this book. And so I had been working on a mental outline on it for a couple of weeks and uh, never really put the outline down on paper. I know you're not supposed to work that way, but sometimes I just kind of do that. And uh, I wrote the entire book in about a three-hour period. And then over the course of of, uh, refining it and getting it ready for publication, it went through a series of seven drafts. So it was just a real interesting project for me. It was a a chance for me to work with a a budding young artist. At this point, the book is at the printer and uh, is due to come in in the next couple of weeks. They've they've pushed it up on their schedule a little bit. And Parker is still just 19 years old. (laughs) (laughs) And the illustrations, I think, are what, I mean, the the story is absolutely charming and, and Dodger is charming as a real dog. Um, but uh, in many respects, the illustrations, you know, with children's books, they just carry the story. And pairing myself up with somebody who at such a young age has so much insight on being able to convey through the drawings uh, all of the different moods of this dog and what the dog's thought process is the whole time 
<laughs> has just been so much fun. And I've, I've really enjoyed this new venture into a, a whole different side of my artistic personality that I didn't even know was there until just recently. So this isn't a long held dream. You haven't thought about being a writer for many years. Is this new? No, I, you know, I've written, uh, I've written plays to perform for children before. And I was a, you know, I was an elementary music educator for a long time. So my, uh, how do I want to put this? I guess my tendencies toward creativity, not necessarily performing, but the, the idea of creating something from scratch, I almost always seem to lean more toward producing something that a child would appreciate. And maybe that's saying something about my own intellect. <laughs> no, I'll beat you to the punch on that. But there's something about being able to tell a story or convey a thought so that a child can understand it and yet have it be so charming that adults will really love it too. It's really what this book is about. As I was working with Yolanda Choli is, is helping me with the publication process on this. And as I was talking with her about the age groups, I was originally thinking it was going to be more for, you know, older elementary to middle schoolers. And uh, she said, even though your, your vocabulary is going to stretch the younger ones, she said, I think this book is really more geared toward, and the message, the simplicity of, of the message in this book is really geared more toward children who are pre-readers to emerging readers. And uh, she said it'll be a challenge for, you know, some emerging readers, but we need challenging books for emerging readers. So that's that's OK. So uh, anyway, I think the book will be great for about ages three to about oh, eight or nine. Although I think older older kids and adults will enjoy it, too. Did you market test it by having any children of different ages read it? I have done a little bit of that, but nothing widespread, you know, in the time of this pandemic here, handing off scripts for children to read without having all the illustrations attached to them has been kind of tricky. And I have not wanted to put the completed book, you know, out there on the Internet because I need to protect my own copyright on it. So it's not been thoroughly tested yet, but um I'm hoping to be able to uh, have a couple of events where I can read it aloud to children this fall and see how they like it. So how did you and Parker work together to develop the storyline? Did you write the entire thing and then Parker did the illustrations or did did Parker have some input and you went back and forth a little bit on it? Well, I wrote I wrote the story and I uh I I pretty much, you know, stuck to the story as it really happened, although there were some embellishments as I <laughs> pretend to think that I know what Dodger is thinking at one moment or the other. But uh w the way I wrote it was I I broke it down into how I envisioned each page or each paragraph on a page looking and then numbered those paragraphs. And so when I was initially working with Parker, I sent them a manuscript that was all broken down with numbered paragraphs on it. And then in our subsequent meetings, what we would do is we would talk about whether or not that paragraph was uh, really two images or whether that paragraph was three or maybe it was just one or maybe one great big image would take two of those paragraphs and hold it over a two-page spread. So, you know, I'd never written a book before, so this was all new to me. And of course, Parker had never illustrated a book before. So I took a lot of suggestions on, on what the art should look like from Parker because 
I just felt that they had such a uh, a strong grasp of what the essence of that paragraph was trying to convey. But there were a couple of times when I would say, I really think this particular place, I would like this to be a two-page picture, a really large picture. And uh, I would like all of these elements somehow contained in it. And if Parker didn't have any objections to that, then we'd go with that idea. So it was a very nice collaboration. I didn't feel like there was any pressure from Parker to inflict their own opinions into what the art should look like unless I simply stepped back and said, here's the paragraph, you create something. So it was really kind of a a page-by-page process uh, as to um, who got to claim <laughs> claim the responsibility for what ended up being drawn. <laughs> so you said that you were working with Yolanda Cioli and Campus Flower Press and, right. and that you had seven drafts. So how did things change? Was that, was that Yolanda's input as an editor to change things? And did it change just the words or the words and the pictures? You know, yeah, I was so lucky to, to be able to meet her and, uh, and to uh, be able to collaborate with her on this. She has known me for a really long time, and I i guess I just uh, had never made the connection. But when I first started Talking Horse, she was on the Arts Commission for the city. And so she was well aware of who I was uh, when I first contacted her and asked her if she would be interested in working with me. So the the process with, with her is that she really knows all the nuts and bolts about publishing, but she also is a very, very fine editor. And she would make some suggestions about just sort of cleaning up particular spots, removing punctuation where it wasn't necessary, being really careful not to repeat the same word, you know, on one page so that it became kind of clumsy language. And, uh, but she also said that she, she didn't, have to do anywhere near as much cleaning with my writing as she's done with some. So she's been very, very encouraging. And when she um, registered the book with Library of Congress, she contacted me and she said, do you think there's going to be more Dodger books? Mm. And I said, well, why are you asking? And she said, well, as you go into the Library of Congress, if you're intending for things to be a series, you register the book in a different way. She said, you've already talked to me about, you know, several other ideas for stories you have with this silly dog. And so, (laughs) (laughs) and I said, let's register it as a series. So there may be some more Dodger books uh, uh, coming down the pike soon. Oh, that sounds like my next question was, are there going to be more Dodger books? Now we know there are. I think there will be. And, and, you know, Dodger is 15 now. So I don't know how much longer Dodger will be actually with us, but uh, he's he's good and healthy now. But... uh, This first book was definitely based on a true story, but that doesn't mean that Dodger stories always have to be true stories. They could be things that I could imagine Dodger doing somewhere down the road. So anyway, I'm, I'm planning on, uh, on getting started after I get this move completed, I'm planning on, on settling in and doing some more writing because I really have enjoyed the process. I wonder whether Dodger will um, decide that the move is a chance for him to make a new escape plan <laughs> and explore his new town. <laughs> yeah, he may have to go out on the town. Dodger Dodger goes out on the town. That could be the, the next title. <laughs> and when it comes out, how do people get hold of the book? Is it going to be at Skylark? How do they buy it? Well, I'll give you just a little background there. One of the things Yolanda encouraged me to do was she said, if you if you set up a pre-order 
and have people commit to buying a book early, that actually helps fund the whole publishing process. So we'd already gone through a pre-order period. That also gave me an idea of maybe how many books I needed to, to initially order so that I had books left over to sell. I didn't want to make a small order and then suddenly I was instantly out. So um, I've contacted Alex George, who runs Skylark, and we're going to do a book signing party there. It's actually like a reveal party with the book in mid-November, November 14th, I believe it's a Saturday. And then in December, on December 5th, we're going to do a book signing event that'll be held at Talking Horse, my old theater. And we're doing sort of a holiday party with that. We haven't gotten all of the logistics worked out, but I think Dodger will be there and Santa will be there. And I think that we're going to try to schedule things in like 30-minute blocks so that we can sort of limit the number of children who come in with their parents each time. But I would love to be able to do some read-alouds and have the kids meet Dodger for real. I just think it would be really fun for for them to actually see that he's a real dog. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's planned for um, this December 5th. And uh, we're hoping to make some connections this next week with the Barnes & Noble store here in town with the idea that we'll have some books available at Barnes & Noble for them to buy as well. And it'll be available on Amazon. Okay, although we recommend that people buy the books locally because that supports local businesses. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, if they buy it from Amazon, what happens is Amazon gets a little cut of it, but then I have to ship the book to you. <laughs> so oh, right. that's, that's the way that's going to work. Yeah. yeah, best to buy it at Skylark. So, so now you stand on the edge of your next adventure. You're moving to Atchison, Kansas, which is a river town about 50 miles northwest of Kansas City. So you're not going to go too far away. And it is the birthplace of Amelia Earhart, I just learned. It is. As a matter of fact, my new house is like three blocks from her, her home. So I I have to admit, I was totally floored that you were leaving and that you were no longer going to be part of the Columbia arts community because you've meant so much to so many people. Why did you decide it was time for a new adventure? Well, it's it's really kind of a, a very personal reason. My partner originally is from that part of Kansas and, uh, a small college called Benedictine College, it's a Catholic school, is located in Atchison. And he taught at Benedictine before he taught at Columbia College. So it's, it's kind of a, a homecoming thing for him. And uh, he's always loved Atchison. He loved the size of the town, the history of the town, and the great historic homes that are there. And a couple of years ago, we were introduced to this uh, couple who owns the house we're buying. And they were in the process of kind of thinking through their retirement. And they had bought a home down in Florida, but they wanted to still be able to be based in Atchison, just not in a great big house. And so they are breaking ground on building a house in Atchison. They're currently renting another house, but they're going to build. And uh, so we're buying this incredible house. And I don't know if you saw the pictures on Facebook yesterday. I did see the pictures. It's a mansion. <laughs> it is It is an incredible house. And it is sort of a mansion. Well, I, I, I sort of was teasing, but it's, it's actually true. Somebody said uh, something about the top floor. And I said, well, it's, it's the ballroom. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was used for parties. And, you know, in the early days of this, of this house, it was built in 1920. So this is, you know, pre-prohibition. And uh, 
it's just, it's a grand house and it's only been owned by three families. It's uh, been very lovingly taken care of. And so there will always be things with an old house, you know, that you have to do for maintenance. We know that. But at the same time, this house has been very well cared for and loved. And uh, it's just ready for us to put our own stamp on it at this point. So, um, you know, I've been here for so long and I've, I've, I, um, feel like I'm I'm really ingrained in Columbia, but at the same time, I'm just kind of an adventurous person, much like my dog. And um, I just was feeling like uh, if we were going to make this move, we needed to do it. And so uh, much to Tim's surprise, I said, well, let's buy this house. And <laughs> I think he, he never thought that I would be willing to go. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and I will be back in Columbia often, I'm sure. I have a daughter that still lives here and a son and his wife and grandson that live in St. Louis. So Missouri will not be a stranger to me, for sure. Well, you are definitely a bit of a serial entrepreneur, as you've been described as. How are you envisaging taking your new city by storm? <laughs> well, I keep telling people I'm retired and they do not believe me. Because <laughs> you've retired so many times. <laughs> you know, it's it's really hard when you're a, a person who just lives and breathes the creative process all the time. It, it is difficult to just say I'm not going to do anything. And that won't be the case with me either, I'm sure. There is actually a, a thriving little community theater group called Theater Atchison that's there. And the artistic director is well aware that I'm coming. And uh, he's got all kinds of things that he thinks I would be great at, including directing for them and, and performing for them and so forth. I'm also going to use the family room that's in the lower level of the house. It has beautiful French doors that close that off. And so I'm going to put the baby grand in there and I'm actually going to do a little teaching again. I think it's a great way to meet new people you know, and, and uh, kind of connect with the community. So I'll do a little private teaching. And then, uh, of course, I'm close enough to Kansas City and, and to the airport that if uh, a good professional acting job was uh, dangled at me, I might consider it. So, <laughs> but I'm not starting another theater company. <laughs> Been there and done that. That's, that's what I was going to ask you <laughs> next, actually, is, you know, when you Thinking back to the early 2010s, or I think you started Talking Horse, was it 2011 or 2012? 2011, uh, when we opened in February of 2012. And at that time, there were already two other community theatre companies in Columbia, which you were very familiar with and, and had acted for and directed with. But still, you felt like we needed a third one. So I, I wonder whether Atchison, Kansas, and the theatrical company that is there might soon have competition like can you really not start your own company well this was <laughs> this was my thought on that <laughs> theater atchison is a company that does mostly larger shows and they don't operate i don't believe year round i think they they do like four or five productions but they don't have any kind of black box element to them they don't have any kind of push the envelope with contemporary drama or comedy that directly deals with social issues and so forth. I don't know if that company is ready for that or not. I, you know, I don't know them well enough and I've not ever been to any of their shows before. I've seen their space and of course I've met their artistic director. But I do think that that type of theater, and that's why Talking Horse got started. That type of theater was missing from the community theater scene here in town and I feel like not only does Talking Horse still do a great job when we're able to 
mount shows with that type of theater. But I think we've also kind of encouraged, maybe not directly, but indirectly, we've encouraged the other two companies to take more risks and to occasionally do shows that deal with social issues and uh, to uh, challenge not only their audiences, but challenge their actors to really step up and, and do something that's got some teeth to it. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen in Atchison or not, but uh, it's, it's not there right now. That type of theater is not there right now. I feel sure it is going to happen in Atchison, knowing you. <laughs> we'll all be busting over and bringing our sleeping bags to crash on the in the ballroom on the top floor of your house to see shows. Yeah, yeah, we'll do we'll do sleepovers in the ballroom. <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs> so now, as you as you're leaving, what do you want your Columbia legacy to be? You know, uh, I, I think that that's a really tough question to sort of narrow that down, but I I really feel like uh, my Columbia legacy needs to be that somebody who, um, with marginal talent, but lots of ideas, can really make a difference, whether that's in the arts or with anything. And um, I think that you just, you just have to have a very positive attitude and approach things with a lot of energy and believe in yourself and believe in your in your project. And um, if you are sincere enough about that and have the convictions for it, I think people will follow you. And I think that's what happened with Talking Horse. When I started that company, I had a lot of people say, I don't know what you think you're doing. <laughs> you know, we were still sort of in the in the recession, you know, from, 20, from 2008 or 29. But I, I do think that a lot of people really bought into what I was trying to do and got behind me on that. And, uh, you know, our audiences started off small and we just kept building and building and building. And then pretty soon I found out that, you know, everybody was saying, well, Talking Horse is the best company to work for. And I was like, well, when did that happen? <laughs> I was too busy working to even notice. So I guess that would be my, my hope for a legacy is that uh, if you are a person who sees a need within the artistic community and really approaches that need head on and is successful with it, then you've really accomplished something, not only for yourself, but for the entire community. What do you think a couple of the key challenges are facing the mid-Missouri theatre world? COVID aside. Well, I think funding is always, is mm. always tough. You know, uh, I can remember when we raised our ticket price to, to 15. And I think now it's actually 17. But when we first raised it to 15, and we were talking about it on the board, whether or not that that was some sort of a weird number that people were going to freak out at. And I was like, you know, I go to New York and I see shows that are marginally better than what we produce, but not heads over heels better than what we produce. And I'm paying $100 a ticket. Hmm. And uh, if we're touting ourselves as a semi-professional company, because Talking Horse does pay the, their actors to be in the show, and if we're paying all of our stage management crew and our tech crew, and people need to understand that that's a commitment that we're making to ensure that the quality of the show is going to be as good as it can be. And if they're balking at a $15 ticket, then... There's something wrong. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. <laughs> so we never had any problems when when we raised our tickets to fifteen. We didn't see any drop in 
attendance or anything. But I, I do think that, that money just in general is, a, is always a challenge, even if you're producing something that requires very little set, just because you've got, you've got other expenses that need to be taken care of. And we have rent and utilities and people buying a ticket, they're, they're investing. It's like when you were talking about buying locally. You know, you buy a book through Skylark, but you're supporting that local business. You know, if you are going to a movie theater, a very small amount of your ticket price is actually going to the people who are working there. But a lot of that's going to the studio. <laughs> so it's uh, even though the theater is local, the, the actual product that they're putting on is not not all that local. So I think, you know, embracing your local arts community is very important. Yeah, I really don't think that $17 is too much to pay for for quality theatre. And there's nobody really in Colombia that's charging more than that. And yet I've seen, like you say, I've seen plays here that have rivaled anything that I've seen in big cities around the world. So it still seems relatively underpriced for what you get in Colombia. I, I think that all companies could feasibly put their prices up and it wouldn't make a huge amount of difference to the individuals, but it would make a difference to how those organizations right. are able to fund themselves. Well, and I think, you know, getting back to the pandemic, I think coming off of the pandemic, as we are able to produce live theater again, I, I hope that the audiences will come back and I hope that they will buy a ticket and make a donation while they're there. So that what they can do is, uh, in doing that is, is helping these companies kind of rebound from not being able to operate for so long. Of the three companies that are in town, uh, Columbia Entertainment Company, Maplewood, and Talking Horse, we're the only group that pays rent. Mm. We have our own space. And of course, there's Greenhouse Theater Project too, but they don't have their own space. They're a a gypsy group. But I'm, I'm just saying we're the only ones who have that liability on our plate on a monthly basis. So we have been very blessed to have some great financial supporters during this during this rough time. And we've come up with some real creative ideas to keep us in front of an audience and to continue to um, be able to to bring in some box office, even though it's virtual. Well, Ed Hansen, actor, director, singer, educator, and now author, I know I speak for very many of us in the arts community when I say that you will be incredibly missed here. You have made such a difference to the community and you have touched so many hearts. And I really wish you weren't leaving us, but I also wish you exciting new adventures. And I know we'll all be coming over on a bus to uh, crash on your top floor with our sleeping bags for the weekend. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And and I will be back in town, like I said, in, in November and December. And with the books uh, getting ready to come in from the, the printers real soon, I'll be knocking on some doors and, and leaving pre-order signed books <laughs> all over Columbia. So uh, people people haven't seen the last of me yet. <laughs> well, I'm very glad about that. Ed Hansen, thank you so much. Thank you for the time today, Diane. I really appreciate it. that is it for another week all the speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the kopn website at kopn.org mm-hmm. 
Thanks again to my guests today, Elizabeth Bratton Palmieri, Matt Bratton, Trent Rash, and Ed Hansen. Thank you also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.